Welcome back to the PFC podcast. The views and opinions you are about to hear are the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of anyone else. Now on to the podcast. Welcome back to the PFC podcast. This is Dennis and today I am with my good friend Bill. How are you doing, Bill? I'm doing great, Dennis. How are you? Uh, I'm doing well. Um, one, happy holidays. Uh, two, would you, since this is your first time on this podcast, uh, would you mind doing a real quick intro? Sure. Uh, Bill Vashis, I'm a, a PA right now, been a PA for just over 20 years. Prior to that, I was a special forces medic and a weapons guy and an engineer. And prior to that, I was a combo guy in the Rangers. So I consider myself a pretty cross-trained SF guy. Right. <laughs> um, so... Uh, one of the reasons why I asked you specifically on this is uh, I think you really kind of pioneered ultrasound in the, at least in the soft community. Um, I guess one, why, why did you, uh, why did you push so hard to have ultrasound um, in our tax sets and in our kind of lexicon? Well, I was initially an opponent to the idea because at the time we only had one ultrasound per battalion uh, and it was for the vet at group level. So it was very difficult to justify having, you know, 35 to 45 medics in a battalion and, you know, one device. So, you know, unless we were going to start doing cage matches to see who got the device, we needed to increase the number of devices we had. And to do that, you had to justify uh, purchasing them by being able to train guys. Now, SF guys are some of the smartest guys out there in the military. I mean, they're they're a certain subset. They're filtered out to make sure that uh, you know we get what we get, and and you can teach them anything. Uh, and so by by solving the logistics problem of making sure that everyone had a machine to use, or at least have you know a reasonable expectation that they would get access to a device, then why would we even start training them in the first place? It's not like we don't have a thousand one other jobs as medics on the team, you know? Absolutely. So, so I just happened to be in a situation where I had a really motivated doc that asked the question. And based on my initial pushback, we started working through some of the, the problems of if we're going to do this, let's do it right. Let's figure out how to, how to make sure that when we get trained, we can actually use a device. And then we presented that idea high up the command and gave them options. And they decided to incorporate, you know, the training program that we had developed into the schoolhouse and into the groups. And that was my job for, for four years mm-hmm. before, I, before I moved on after that. So I think it, we're full of good ideas. And this good idea needed a lot more solutions before it was truly a good idea. Right. And and. It's, it's a tool. Ultrasound, in fact, is, is a tool. So how can I become a better provider? Um, there's a spectrum from you getting injured, me coming up to you and trying to treat you, and then getting you to the point where you're better. That whole spectrum, uh, some of it I can solve at point of injury. Some of it I need to do something into prolonged field care. And then, you know, more than likely, most often, I'm going to have to get you to somebody else. To, for them to do the definitive care and all the follow-on and aftercare. All of those things belong. I mean, all of those are on, on a spectrum. And what can I do? What tools do I have in my bag or I have access in my team room that I can further you as, as far as possible along that spectrum so that when I send you to this location, 
I have a higher reasonable certainty that, that I'm sending you to the right place or right. any treatment that I do while I have you in front of me is as productive as I possibly can, or at least I'm not, I'm not doing a bunch of experimental things to try and figure out, Oh, this was right. This was wrong. So if I have a tool that can help me figure that out before I do something that's definitive and I can't reverse like mm-hmm. sticking the needle in a chest or putting a tube in a chest, then, then why would I not use it? Right. I understand. Um, but I guess my question is, I mean, I understand you had like one vet or one ultrasound at the vet, but what problem were you trying to fix? I mean, MOI plus one, I mean, that works everywhere and it's really never wrong. So, um, I guess why, why are we adding, wanting to add, or why did you want to add ultrasound to the mix? Well, it wasn't, it wasn't my idea. It was a question that was posed to me by uh, Drew Morgan, who was the battalion doc for, for us in first battalion third group. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, it was his crazy idea, you know, and I don't know who he got that from beforehand or was it just, just his, but it was a good question and it required a lot of thought and planning to figure out, you know, is it, is it truly a good idea or is it just one more thing that's going to be, uh, you know, a good idea that adds to our duties and responsibilities, but doesn't really benefit us. Right. Um, we thought that we had an, a nice iterative process to where we, we got a few extra machines and we trained folks to use them. And then that showed that we could do it and that justified getting more machines and doing it. So, um, yeah, I, and it was just a case of, uh, if, if, if it is going to be a true, a good idea, then let's work it through. So, so it, I don't like how I'm, I don't like where I'm going with this. Okay. But I mean, <laughs> what, I mean, are we fixing a problem? Well, I mean, we didn't know we needed an iPhone until it was put in front of us. Right. True. So, um, we can't always just say this is a problem and that's a good place to start. Like, this is a problem. How do I solve this problem? But this was being done in emergency rooms, you know, uh, everywhere. Well, not everywhere, but a good portion of, of, of places had this as point of injury evaluation. Mm-hmm. It's definitely in the ER. So how do we extend that to, to the pre-hospital environment? At right. the time, those machines were pretty good size. So I don't think it was ever a ruck device that we would carry in the ruck, although we did test it in Afghanistan. Uh, I had a modified uh, M9 bag that one of the medics actually designed, and it was brilliant. It was padded. It had just one M9 bag with a with a Sonicite M-Turbo mm-hmm. that was rigged so you could just pull the cord out of the bottom and plug it in, and you had all the, the probes stored in the area that was padded. I mean, it, it was very durable and it made a lot of sense for what we were doing. We could just take a D-Link, put it through the top handle, and hang it up in the vehicle so it didn't get crushed under the ammo and water and food and feet, you know, right. that's going through the vehicle. So that was, you know, that was brilliant. Um, but I think bringing it pre-hospital where we have to make a lot of decisions that kind of choose a path for the patient, it makes sense to know as much as possible before you, you start off on that path. Oh yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you know, just to statistically, I want to say each intervention that penetrates through the skin in a hospital increases your likelihood of, of an infection by 3%. So that be IVs, that could be brakes, chest tubes, whatever. So needlessly, and that's in a hospital, not in like a ditch or wherever right. you're in a wadi or wherever else you find yourself. Um, you know, so that's 
know, of being able to, I think, accurately diagnose a chest injury um, mm-hmm. more so than, well, I think, or um, like even worse, like, what harm is it going to do by, you know, actually doing this intervention? You know, uh, a finger thoracotomy. And what harm could it possibly do to my trauma patient by just doing it? Well, I can tell you that I've I've made the mistake both ways. I've I've put a chest tube in somebody that I realized after I put it in that they didn't need it. And there was another patient where we didn't put a chest tube in for at least a good 15 minutes while we were trying to figure out, looking at a portable chest X-ray to determine, you know, is there is there a reason to put a chest tube in? And in both times, once we did it, it was pretty evident that we should have either not done the chest tube at all because there wasn't a pneumothorax. There was plenty of superficial penetration of the skin, but it didn't actually go into the thorax and the chest cavity. So the lungs weren't compromised. Um, and in, in the other case, um, there was you know a good 400 cc's, 4 to 500 cc's of, of blood that was in the chest that you just really couldn't appreciate on the portable chest x-ray just because of the nature of a portable chest x-ray. Mm-hmm. So, um, in, I, in both cases, if we had put an ultrasound on the, on the patient's chest, we would have known instantly one way or the other. Right. So any tool that one would help you from not making one mistake uh, and preventing another uh, is, is a tool that I want in my bag, or at least I want somewhere close. Yeah. So, t- I mean, just kind of caveat on top of that, how, how hard is it to actually, I mean, to diagnose a, a pneumo, say a pneumothorax? Um, you know, what I have at my disposal, other than ultrasound, I have um, hands on his chest, which are calibrated, of course, um, Here's two, and right? a stethoscope, right? Or, and mm-hmm. maybe a pulse ox. So, I mean, with those things, basic things, like how hard is it to actually diagnose uh, a pneumothorax or maybe even a hemo? Right. Well, you you have the IAPP, right? Inspect, auscultate, palpate, and percuss. And so am I going to be able to visually see based on mechanism of injury or uh, obvious penetrations to the box? That's one thing. If I listen, am I going to be able to tell the difference between the two? I've already acknowledged my, my, my... inadequacies in being able to detect, you know, one side that had pneumothorax and the other side that didn't. Um, and then, you know, palpate, I can look and feel if I have, you know, potential rib fractures or uh, subcutaneous emphysema or any other indications that there's compromise of the thorax. Um, and then, good God, if I can, if I can figure out percussing to look for timpani, like, I mean, I, I'm, you know, I probably should probably still have the, uh, uh, anatomy book out on how to do physical, you know, physical exams and turn to the right page. Cause if I'm uh, if at that level, I, I really sh- shouldn't be doing what I'm doing. So if I use the tool, what you're looking for is lung sliding. Right. And whether you pull out a high frequency linear transducer to determine if there's lung sliding of the, the parietal and visceral pleura between the rib space, or you use um, the the abdominal setting on a low frequency curvilinear or a phased array transducer, and you just set the depth to you know somewhere between four and six centimeters. You can uh, you can you can detect whether there's lung sliding present. Okay. You can, um, and then if that doesn't work, almost all of the ultrasounds that are out there now have 
uh, M motor motion, and you can put a line on there. And with the line, you can actually see a tracing alongside the bottom of your screen that will show you that from the area from the surface of the skin to the pleural lining is no movement. And then below the pleural lining, you're going to see what is commonly referred to as the seashore sign. Or, you know, you're going to be able to see that um, with 100% certainty. With ultrasound, I think it's, I mean, it's kind of black and white. It's either there or it's not. With um, just IAPP, just in my experience, which I am not saying that I'm even a good medic, but um, IAPP, I have been definitely burnt before. Like you mentioned, a patient with a, a what'd you say, a hemilobectomy, and he called you up? Pneumonectomy. Pneumonectomy? Yeah, so the whole lung was removed from cancer, I presume. Um, but I've definitely been burnt by people that, um, like, they already knew they had, you know, whatever trauma to it. But just IAPP, you're like, yeah, everything's good. Um, yeah. So I think, you know, it, even though with T-TRI-C, you have to kind of almost go with your gut and think of what is the worst case scenario. Let me get ahead of it. When you can, you know, there, I think you'd be, um, I don't know what the right word is, um, complicit or, I mean, you are definitely at fault if you have access to an, an ultrasound and you refuse to use it in, instead of whatever gestalt you have. I don't know. I think, well, I think, I mean, and I think the word you're looking for was cavalier. You could be a little cavalier and just do it. But so I'm a, I have a great imagination. Yeah. And so if I understand the mechanism of injury, I have a very good idea of what could be wrong. I don't mm -hmm. know. I mean, I've, said this in, in, in classes before I could take and stab you in over near the liver, right? I could stab you on the spleen side and, and I have a reasonable suspicion of what the injuries could be on the inside, on the other side of the skin. But I truly don't know. Was it that freakish one in a million where it just missed everything vital and didn't hit any major vessels? Um, but but I don't know. Same thing with a gunshot. Gunshots, those things take left and right turns all the time. And so you really don't know. But you have a good imagination uh, of what the potential injuries are based on the mechanisms of injury. So if I'm going to be cavalier or aggressive, and I'm just going to do everything that I can do that to, to, to make sure that you make it through the TC3 phase to get the PFC, then... Then I may have a good outcome and I may not. You know, there's there's a good percentage of patients that I could do everything wrong and they're gonna survive despite my best efforts. Right. And and the other side of it, I could do everything right with a full team of trained people and we have every diagnostic tool imaginary imagined and then they still die. So you have you have those, but you know, that fifteen to twenty percent that of patients that are in the middle that that whether they live or die really depends on the care that we provide. You know, you want that to be the best care possible. Right. So I think uh, uh, specifically for ultrasound, if I'm going to use that tool and I'm going to spend extra time, it's so I don't do something that I don't have to do right. on a patient. If, if the patient is stable enough or their vital signs are, are, are good enough that, that I have the time to do the diagnostic exam to make sure that if I do this test, it's truly necessary, then I'm kind of 
I'm not going to say negligent, but, but I'm kind of a dick if I don't, right. you know? Um, so why would I not get, why would I not want to get good at a, at a, at a diagnostic tool or with a tool to be a better provider? Right. So I guess kind of going with that, I mean, what kind of tools do you want? I mean, some, some uh, devices are you know, very ruggedized. They have chips and it's, you know, just a wand. Some are, you have, you know, multiple different wands. I mean, do I look for things that have the best resolution? Do you look at things that have the best uh, durability? Like just in your professional opinion, austere experience, what would you look for? First of all, I try to figure out where am I going to, where am I going to, where am I most likely to use it? Mm -hmm. Right. And if I get a device that's small enough that I could use it, not during initial injury, but if I have a team and I, and I could be that extra person that runs between multiple patients and provides additional information that will help correctly prioritize them in the triage, then, then that would be one scenario. But if I know that I'm the only medic on this team or for this mission, and I'm going to be the only medic for the whole time I'm out there, then I'm not likely to use it right at point of injury because I'm going to be too busy taking doing the, the initial TC3. Mm-hmm. And there really is no part of ultrasound and TC3 at this point. There's some devices that are small enough, but once again, you still have to follow March and all of that. So I'm going to be well into my secondary secondary exam and I'm going to get to the point where I can document all the stuff that I've done in the TC3 phase then before I'm going to pull this tool out. Right. Right. Because if the patient is, is that uh, is presenting clinically that they need something, then I'm going to, I'm going to do it. I'm going to be that cavalier medic and I'm going to do it because I don't have time to figure out if I don't have to do it. Okay. And that's all based on, on how that patient is presenting. I mean, the more, the more aggressive their symptoms are, the the more aggressive I have to be in response. Now, right. you know, the idea for me to be slow, to be smooth, and by smooth, I'm going to be fast, you know, that still applies, right? I just still need to take a breath and make sure that I'm doing the right thing and I'm not just amping up my, you know, my pulse to in response of theirs. Right. Um, but having said that, if I'm at the point where I have calmed down and I was able to not do a, a you know, a procedure because the patient was clinically kind of in that iffy stage of, do I need to do it? Do I not? And I can watch them to see is, uh, is, is more on my gestalt and my experience. And how many times have I put in that situation? Can I get away with not doing a procedure right now? Because I've seen patients like that. And I know that, you know, based on my history of it, you know, one third of those patients are bad and I'm totally making up numbers. Um, but, but, you know, I'm going to make that gut call based on my experience and, and how the patient's acting. Right. Um, but then when I get to the point where I can take a break and pull it out, uh, it needs to be at least handy, mm-hmm. whether it's in the vehicle in a bag or it's in my, you know, team clinic or, you know, wherever I'm, wherever I'm going to be. Okay. So first off, I decide where am I likely to use it? And then that is going to go into the decision process of what device do I get or what do I need? Um, and, I don't see why if we approach every other item that we have in the tax set with the ruck truck house plane, you know, planning, planning paradigm, well, then I would do the same thing with ultrasound. If I have a device small enough to carry with me with point of injury, but it sacrifices clarity of image or durability or, you know, it's more durable, but it doesn't do as much, then, you know, 
do I have a device for me that, that I carry with me? And do I have a different device that's in my team clinic that never leaves the clinic? So, I mean, most of it, what we've been talking about so far is just well, it's a lung slide, right? Right, I mean, that's just one one trick. That's just one trick, right? Um, you know, obviously you have the entire EFAST exam. Um, yeah, I mean, and then, of course, there are other mnemonics, but for kind of the, the trauma aspect of it, EFAST. Mm -hmm. um, what other kind of things can you do with ultrasound? Well, if you're doing skin, soft tissue, musculoskeletal stuff, uh, you can detect a fracture. You can detect a foreign body, whether it's glass, wood, plastic, stone, metal, doesn't matter. You can you can find that in in uh, under the skin somewhere. You can do intraocular pressure to detect elevated intracranial pressure. I mean, there's there's been some studies to say that that's a simple process to do. Uh, I'm pretty facile with ultrasound, and, and it really depends on the patient. Mm -hmm. So the patient's looking around all the time. You're not going to see the optic nerve sheath because that patient's eyes are going everywhere. So, right. uh, But that's not you know, necessarily part of the training is to figure out how to get your patient to look in one direction long enough that you can find the optic nerve sheath to measure it. Right. That's one thing. Uh, I can use it to start a line. I can use it to do a peripheral block. Um, peripheral nerve block, I should say. Um, I can look at kidneys. If I got somebody with polypy pain, I can I can scan their kidneys to look for hydronephrosis to see that a stone is obstructing the ureter. I can look down in the bladder to see if there's uh, bladder jets that the, the ureters are not obstructed. Um, you know, all of that can can go into trying to figure out what really is going on with my patient. Right. Then the patient always gets to throw you a curveball because they can have more than one thing going on. Sure. You know. You know, without sending the memo. Like, right. oh, by the way, I've had this festering infection that was going on before I got shot. Yeah. So, you know, what's going on? I mean, I, at least in my uneducated opinion, really, it's the sky's the limit. How smart are you at basic physiology? And what can you imagine that you can see? Well, think about it. it every other test, every other diagnostic test that you do in medicine should be for a reason. Mm -hmm. You do your good history and you do a physical exam, right? And then you go, huh, here's my differential, you know, my list of differential diagnosis. And then I'm going to do a test to figure out what I can take off my list and what moves up higher on the list. That's all it is. And so if I have a question, I wonder if there's a foreign body in there. I wonder if there's a fracture. I wonder if he has free fluid in the peritoneum. I wonder if he's got a pneumothorax or a hemothorax. I wonder, you know, what the heart is doing because I got this funny looking beat, you know, or a funny looking EKG. What, what, what is the heart actually doing? You know, mm -hmm. um, I'm going to do some diagnostic study, whether it's conventional radiology or CT or MR, you know, if I'm in a hospital, but I'm also going to do ultrasound in a hospital. And a lot of ER, ERs will, will pre-scan something to get an idea, start the treatment, and then order, you know, something that's more, more definitive or comprehensive, either a, a more comprehensive ultrasound study or sending them for other imaging. Um, but it's, it's something that I can do point of care that answers a question that I've formed based on what I've done, and, but the question that I've asked the patient and the physical exam I've performed, right? Right. And so sometimes, you know, is it an abscess or is it just cellulitis? That mm -hmm. dramatically changes how you treat that patient. Right. So, so, you know, I'm getting ready for deployment. So what do you, what should I be doing as far as getting myself up to speed on ultrasound? 
do I need to go to a course? Is this something that I can just get a book? Is this something I need to put more effort into? Well, I understand that all the SOCOMs and 18 Deltas are graduating with some experience with ultrasound. So yep. you at least have an idea of what your comfort level and exposure has been to this point. When they do hospital rotations, they play with them and there's no shortage of people that will tell you how to do this, you know, better. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times those are misguided and well-meaning, but not actually helpful. But, but you know, there are, there are, there are a lot of people out there that know how to use ultrasound and they're very good at it. And so you have to make that judgment whenever they're, you know, it's kind of similar to golf instructors, you know, you're on the range and they'll tell you, Hey, I can tell you how to drive it a little bit farther or fix that, you know, cure that slice of yours. Uh, there's a lot of people that teach ultrasound the same way. You know, okay. they're just, they're offering some ideas, but in the end, you just got to shake your head, say thank you and go off and figure something else out. Right. Um, but more often than not, you're going to have some people that are really good at it and they'll give you a, a little tip or a little trick that you can take away. Okay. Um, you know, you're not going to remember everything that they say because otherwise you'd be good at it from the first time you play with it. But uh, I think just having it out and using it when I first learned, I was learning the same time as the medics in my battalion. Mm-hmm. And so my motivation was they, their expectation was that they could ask me a question about it and I should be able to answer it. And so my motivation was to be able to, to not say, to be, to be in a position to not say, I don't know too many times right. because you keep asking somebody something and they keep answering. I don't know. You're going to stop answering. You're going to stop asking them. And so that was my motivation to learn. So what is your motivation to learn? Is it so you can treat your patients better so you can do the right thing for your teammates? You know, mm-hmm. um, whatever your motivation is, you got to dig down and figure that out. Cause right. how do I yeah. recognize somebody in the hospital that actually knows what they're doing? Find that ER doc that has one in his pocket. Okay. Because if they're going to spend the money to, to have one personally, Right. then chances are it's something that they're either really motivated to learn and they may not know it now, but they're, they're well on their way to learning um, or, or they're just really good at it. And they've decided to uh, have an ultrasound because it is a really good tool for them to use. And wherever they're working, for some reason, they don't have enough of them. Mm-hmm. Right. Cool. Um, that's probably the easiest way. Find somebody that's got one in their pocket or they at least have it at their station and they take it in all the time to their patients. That's true. Right. That's true. Yeah, that's that's probably the first flag, you know, to kind of say, hey, this person might know what they're doing. Okay. Um, if you if you're doing rotations and you see a sonographer, an actual sonographer, somebody that's school trained and goes in and do does the comprehensive studies that are ordered in the hospital, they they are good. They're going to know. They're going to know a lot of tips and tricks on how to scan and and make a get a readable image on a patient that maybe doesn't, you know, isn't, isn't designed to be scanned very well. Right. Right. You know, they're, they're going to know, they, they definitely know more than one way to get an image off a patient that doesn't seem uh, like they want to give you a good image okay. or they'll help show you like, Hey, when you see this, when you see this, you're just not going to be able to see, you know, this is, you're just not going to be able to go to image and you just have to get to the point where, okay, that's okay. You've at least taken taking a look with the ultrasound to see if you can determine one way or the other. But at some point you may just not be able to get an image from that person. And so you need to know when to stop trying because it's not worth the return on the effort. Right. Right. Um, um, 
And that's why they have, you know, that's why you can say I have an indeterminate fast. I wasn't able to fully visualize the left upper quadrant. I looked everywhere else on the e-fast and I didn't see anything. So you're just saying I've looked, I didn't see anything. I can't say it's negative, but I didn't see anything to call it positive. So it's indeterminate. Right. So, and with that being said, what is like the common mistakes that you've seen, um, you know, medics doing that, that screws up their image and they're not able to make that determination. I, I have a slide that basically says the the five P's to um, getting a better image. You know, the, the other working title is how to make your image not suck. Right. Um, definitely use a lot of gel. You can run out of gel, especially if you're trying to detect a pneumothorax and you're going, you know, all the way up or all the way down the the lung and as you're sliding you're running out of gel and so once you run out of gel uh, air is the enemy of ultrasound so uh, once you have no gel between the transducer and the body then your image goes to crap so first off have enough gel probably the most common thing that people mess up is they're not they don't understand you have to be perpendicular to whatever you're looking at because all the ultrasounds they generate a signal and it sends it into the body it hits something in the body and then it comes back to the ultrasound. So every ultrasound you get out there is just a glorified stopwatch. Hmm. It, it sends a signal out, starts the clock, takes time how long it goes to hit something and comes back and it stops the stopwatch. Then it does some mental gymnastics, some math, and it paints a dot, you know, on, on the screen. And that's how, you, you know, it does that anywhere from what, one or two to 20 million times a second. So sometimes, you know, it's, you have to just figure out how to interpret those dots. Right. And since we've all seen anatomy books and we've looked at CTs and MRIs, they're, they're comparable, but ultrasound is different enough that you still have to understand how to orient uh, what you're looking at on the screen. What is the near field? What is far field? What is, you know, what, what are, what side are you looking? What side is the probe indicator? Mm-hmm. You know, every ultrasound, excuse me, every ultrasound has a probe indicator. And then you have to figure out what that is on the device. Sometimes it's a dot. Sometimes it's a ridge. Sometimes it's a, you know, it, it's a line. You know, every one of them, they, they have different ways. So you have to figure out what that is. And then that corresponds with whatever dot probe indicator on your screen. And so everything under the dot on the probe is under the dot on the screen. Once you figure that out, um, people that play video games are really good at this. They have good visual spatial orientation. Right. Um, but if, if you suck at video games, then you might need a little extra training with the ultrasound. Um, so that's, that's usually they're, they're looking at a really oblique angle to something in the body and that diminishes the return of the signal back to the ultrasound. So you have a really shitty image, um, making sure you have enough pressure. You know, if you're looking through the rib cage, no, no amount of pressure is going to get it closer. Um, but if you're looking at the aorta or something along those lines, you gotta, you gotta push down enough to dispel some of the gas to the side so you can get by around that because there is the enemy of ultrasound. Right. If you're looking at the eye, you don't want any pressure, right? So, and then if you have an artifact, which I would say that if you're really good at interpreting what the artifacts are, then you should be significantly better in interpreting the image that you see on your screen. Okay, mm-hmm. so artifacts are things that confuse the ultrasound device, um, but it does consistently. So if I see an artifact, that tells me, you know, when I see... If I'm looking at the lung, I see lung sliding and I see a little comet tail, which is a little light kind of shooting down from that lung sliding. That's a comet tail. Well, that only happens when both of those, the visceral and the parietal pleura, are touching and moving back and forth. 
Right. It's it's a it's a somewhat a surface, uh, not even say defect, but it's a surface space change from the visceral pleura to the parietal pleura, and that space causes the signal to you know kind of bounce back and forth, and you get this little comet tail that shoots down. Well, it, that can only happen when the lungs intact. If the if the lung drops away as in a pneumothorax, you don't see lung sliding and you don't see comet tails. Mm -hmm. So by seeing the, the artifact of a comet tail, that tells me that those two surfaces have to be touching. Right. So if you get really good at recognizing all the artifacts, then it becomes easier to recognize when you have a certain condition in the body. Right. It's just associating those two and becoming comfortable with them. You know, if I'm looking for free fluid, sharp dark edges follows the contour of the anatomy and it's not surrounded by a wall that's supposed to be there. That's free fluid. If it, if it meets those criteria, then it's free fluid. Right. So, yeah. Um, but part of that is just having it explained in a way that, that fits and matches what the 18 Delta knows. So I think that that probably helped me the most, you know, coming from a, an SF medic background to learning this. I know what the Delta's, you know, I've been through the same training as the Delta. So uh, I understand what they should know. Um, and so we can take all the, the fluff that you get from, from a hospital lecture uh, and put it into just the facts of what we need to know as medics. Right. Um, well, thank you, Bill. I really appreciate it. Well, happy to be here. Cool. Today's podcast, be sure to go to our website, www.prolongfieldcare.org. Find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram. Subscribe and stay on the bleeding edge of combat medicine. This is Dennis for the PFC Podcast. Our boy is waiting there for you.